uh, welcome to the Brook. My name is Richard Cable, one of the pastors here. Um, excited, honored that we could connect together in this moment, in this way. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be for the duration of our time together. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the words will be on the screen so we could track through the text together. We're in the middle of a series, A People. Our hope is to walk through the marks that mark us, that move us forward as we seek to grow a people from all people passionate for God. We're unpacking the values that should describe, define, and ultimately drive us. Vehicles for our growth personally and collectively. So in the last few weeks, we've been wrestling with this value, our growing desire for God shapes everything, that there's a direct line between the desires in our heart and the decisions that we make, how we see, how we think, how we feel, and how we act. And a growing desire for God shapes how we see, how we feel, how we think, and how we act in beautiful, good, true, noble, and glorious ways, reflecting that there's Weight and beauty to life with Jesus. Weight and beauty to a life we should thirst for. Now, with every value, what we've said is that there's habits, there's rhythms, there's streams that exist to cultivate the values. So the start of our growing desire for God is to actually encounter him, to encounter God, encounter the God who is as he is, not as we would like him to be, that what we believe about God, who we believe God to be, should be in line with what he says about himself, that we should encounter him, encounter God. And then we move to examine the heart because with frequency and clarity, the scriptures invite us to examine the heart. They tell us that the heart is who we are. It is the home of all of our emotions, our thoughts, our volition and will, our perceptions and our conscience. It's who we are and it's where we live from. And we're called to examine the heart well by knowing its anatomy as well as understanding its aim to love God with all of who we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love God with all of who we are is to love him with the entirety of our hearts and to love our neighbor as ourself is to love them with the sincerity and the dignity that we would direct to ourselves. That is the aim of the heart. Examine the heart. This week, as we close the streams for this value, is lead the heart. Lead the heart. Now, assumed in the call to action of lead the heart is agreement with where we're called to lead it, i.e. the aim to lead the heart to a place where it receives and responds to the love of God. Well, that is what it means to lead the heart to join God as he is moving us to a place where we receive and respond well to his love. Now, there's some <laughs> soothing and scary simplicity to what we're going to be looking at today as it relates to leading the heart and how we could do that well. Some paradigms and perspectives to adopt and practices to apply. They're, they're soothing, scary, and simple. What's soothing is we don't necessarily need like this abundance of strategy <laughs> 
or ingenuity. We don't need that. We need the humility of willingness. And that's what soothes us is that we don't have to be super strategic or clever. We just need to be humble and willing. But that's also what's scary because you know and I know that willingness is frail and fragile. Like there's a fragility to willingness. It should be handled with care because it's easily affected, which is why one of the areas of concerns that we talked about last time briefly was woundedness and how woundedness is what happens when we, we experience a wound from pain that we're unable to heal from or move forward from. And that's a, it's pain that's attached to dreams that aren't fulfilled, desires that are unmet, frustrations that we experience, and fears that we have that actually come true. Now, that could be attached to our own sin, the sin of others to us, Either way, when there's a wound that we can't heal from, it creates woundedness and woundedness hardens and wearies the heart. And when we are hurt, when we are numb and when we are tired, we are less willing. So, (laughs) you know how hard it is to wake up children to get ready for school once they spent the previous night doing the most. That's why Wednesdays are hard at our house because Taco Tuesdays are a vibe. So Wednesday morning, we know what's happening. It's the, oh, give me 15 more minutes, give me 20 more minutes because their willingness has been assaulted by fatigue. We know that. We also know that, that there's some experiences, some past experiences where we have failed Things didn't work out the way we thought they would. And that empties us of confidence to try again. And you could believe and want something for somebody even more than they want it from themselves. But if there's a past experience that somebody may be holding on to, it could numb them to be more willing. It'll harden their heart as it relates to believing and wanting to try again, to have willingness. So exhibit A, me and swimming. God didn't give me gills. So I'm not about that. I'm good. I'm good off of that. I've had a past experience. I don't need to keep trying and figuring this thing out. That woundedness that leads to hardness of heart and weariness in the heart makes us less willing and makes it more difficult to actually lead our hearts well. And so I just, now wherever you are, if you are, in a space where you know that you're just wounded. If you're in a space where you know that you are just tired, you are wearied. If you know you're in a space where you are frustrated, where you don't have the want to, to want to, you just need to know that we're praying for you, all right? You also need to know that God is at work in you if you know him. So this is the beauty and power of Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, for God is at work in us to will and work for his good pleasure. Essentially, God God is at work in his people to produce rich affections, the desire, the willingness, the want to, as well as the right directions where the heart should go. Which is why, again, to lead the heart well 
is to join God in the work, to join God where he's working, how he's working, and to what end he's working, which is for us to be at a space where we could receive and respond to the love of God well. Now enter Colossians. Colossians is a gem. It is a gem in the scriptures. It is gold. Yeah. And Colossians chapter 3 situates us in a series of imperatives, these calls to actions that reflect the majesty of Christ. It's beautiful. But within these call to actions, what we get is really an overarching or dominating perspective and then some ongoing practices that Paul invites us to have. He actually says we must do these things. But the overarching perspective and these ongoing practices actually are necessary for us to lead the heart well. So that will be the movement of our time through the text. We're going to look at this overarching perspective as well as these ongoing practices to help lead the heart well. And then we're actually going to close with what's functionally a plea and a prayer for our hearts when we don't desire God. Overarching perspective, practices, then a plea for our hearts. Would you read with me? And then we'll get to work. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it reads like this. If then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, there's a thread of majesty that runs. I mean, it just bleeds through every page in this book. It's not just seen in the poetic language, even the ones that we just read, but it's seen in the lofty ideas and claims that Colossian gives us. Claims regarding Jesus that he makes the invisible God visible. This is Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. The decisive and most beautiful description of who God is. Full disclosure. You want to know what God is like? You look to Jesus. Claims, ideas regarding what it means to know him. That he invites us into a life of pleasure and joy that has weight and beauty. That idea we want to add to the future. Now, there's a pivot that we see in chapter three. The pivot is on the heels of the beginning, actually, of chapter two, where in chapter two, verse five, Paul says, in the same way that you receive Christ, so walk in him. The way that you receive Christ is by grace and faith, that it's the grace of God. The grace of God is God doing in, through, and for us what we desperately need done but can't do ourselves. It's unmerited unearned favor to do in, through, and for us what we desperately need but can never do. That's the grace of God. And the decisive experience of grace is God through Jesus living 
the life that we were meant to, but could it perfect obedience, perfect relationship with God, living that life that we couldn't, but we were designed to Jesus living that for us, dying the death that we absolutely deserve that the rejection of that life and relationship leads to separation in the here and now and eternity. It's death. But Jesus comes down and he not only lives, but he dies in our place for our sake. But he doesn't just stay dead. God raises him from the dead because everything Jesus said was true and he was faithful and he was perfect and he was obedience and God is faithful God loves him and raised him for the dead so that we could have life with him. That is the grace of God at work for us. And our response is faith, actively believing who God is and what God says, taking him as true. And he says, that way that you've received Christ, you now walk in him, grace and faith, because the grace of God isn't just unmerited, unearned favor. It's divine empowerment. It is him working in us, through us, for us. And faith is taking him as true. So you continue to walk in that, that new life that he offers you. And so when you get to three, he just starts to, I mean, unload these explicit lifestyle ethics that are tied to the identity and the life God would have for people. But the beginning of chapter three actually gives us this dominating, overarching perspective that is essentially the superiority of Jesus above all things, the centrality of Jesus among all things, and the invitation he has for us for life with him. That's the perspective, the superiority of Jesus above all things, the centrality of Jesus among all things, and this invitation that he has for us for life with him. And out of that flows these lifestyle ethics, out of that flows these decisive actions and these ongoing practices that show up specifically in verse 16. But there's some more stuff in this perspective that's rich, that should produce something decisive in us that helps us lead well. It should produce at least two things. One is more explicit and obvious. The other is explicit and less obvious. The explicit but less obvious is found in the beginnings of verse one Verse three and verse four says, if then you've been raised with Christ, verse one, verse three, you have died. You've died with him. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you then will appear with him in glory. That verse one, verse three and verse four, they communicate this robust concept of union with Christ. Union with Christ means that it means, it means, it means several things. There's layers to it. But essentially that I am one with Christ. I am one with Jesus. Now, one aspect of that that is rich and it's I mean, it's just soothing is God looks at me the same way he looks at Jesus. One aspect of that is adoption, that I'm part of the family now. I am seen as an heir of eternity. 
daughters and sons of the king of the universe. God is our father. And this collision of union that takes place once we receive Christ exists to produce rest. It exists to produce rest. Most of us are emotionally and spiritually exhausted because we're trying to carve out for ourselves a place in human history of significance that in the back of our minds or the front of our minds, there's this feeling that causes us to want to justify our existence. I want to prove, whether to myself or to others, that I'm not an accident. I'm here for a reason. There's purpose. And that, that drive leads to a lot of weariness and tired people. But there's also this bent in relationship where we walk timidly and tenderly because sometimes in the back of our minds, sometimes in the front of our minds, we know that we're one bad day away, one mistake away for ruining a significant relationship. We're one accident away, it seems, for causing the people that we care about the most to move from being pleased with us to being disgusted by us. And that causes us to walk gingerly and timidly, not restfully. But do you know how God sees Christ? He sees him with eyes of love. Pleasure that's bound to his identity above all else. So Matthew 3.17, before Jesus defeats Satan in the wilderness, Matthew 4, before Jesus feeds the 5,000, Matthew 14, before he opens the eyes of the blind, before he goes to the cross, God tears open the heavens and speaks this phrase, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Before all of the acts that would come to mark and define Christ, God looked at him with pleasure. Union with Christ should produce rest in us because God sees us and he says, I'm pleased with you because I'm pleased with my son. Now, sandwiched between that robust picture of union is clear action. though. It's this seeking and setting. Seek these things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the earth. This seeking and setting language, though, it's not new to Colossians. It's all throughout the scriptures. Seeking and setting communicates determination, devotion, this decisive move, direction. It communicates resolve. It's almost like this beautiful tunnel vision towards that which matters the most. So Ezra 7 talks about how Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord. He was devoted to it. Deuteronomy 7 talks about how God set his heart to love his people, not because they were worthy, but because he was determined to do it. Luke 9, like as the time drew new for Christ to die, it says that he set his face to Jerusalem, that he didn't turn away from what was coming. He was determined to go there because he knew what he would produce by shedding blood on a Christ that to seek and to set is to be so determined is to have desired rooted in that which matters the most that it drives all actions is to be captured by something and centered by something. 
Centering means that there's this frame of reference that is now adopted that affects how everything else is arranged. So take most living rooms. Most living rooms, you have end tables, you have furniture, but it all is arranged around what's central, typically the TV. What he's saying here is seek and set who you are on Christ who is above in a way where he determines how everything else is arranged in your life. And so this beautiful perspective should produce rest and resolve. It should cause us to lead the heart well by having great rest knowing God is for us and great resolve knowing that he's also worthy. Now, from there, again, there's this, all these explicit lifestyle ethics. But even the lifestyle ethics that he blitzes them with, blitzes us with, they revolve, they orbit around verse 16, which is really this ongoing um, practice. Let me read it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The beginning of that, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, is both paradigm perspective as well as ongoing practice. So word of Christ, word of God, that is literally the full description and disclosure of Christ, the gospel, life, death, burial, resurrection for us. But what Jesus tells us about himself is that his story is contained from cover to cover in the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, every single page points us to Jesus. And so the word of Christ is the story of Jesus unfolded through the scriptures. He says, let that word, that rich story dwell in you richly. So, um, Martin is one of my favorite shows of all time, like top 10 TV shows of all time anyway. Martin is prime before Rebound and Black Knight. And so Martin, the TV show, he had several characters that he would play. Uh, Day, Dragonfly Jones, Roscoe, Jerome. It was great. But there was one character that he didn't play that was actually my favorite character, Brumman for the fourth, fifth floor. And so uh, <laughs> Brumman lived above him and would climb in his window and he would just make himself present in his house. Uh, but he didn't live there. What he, what, what he says, dwell, it's residence. It's, it's somebody that actually lives in the house, not an inconvenience, not an unwelcome guest, or not even a welcome guest, but somebody who lives in the house. That he would dwell, the word of God would live in us. But then it ups the ante with, with richly, that it wouldn't just reside in us, but it would occupy a primary space, which goes back to that perspective, superior above all things, central among all things, that it would occupy this primary space, that the word of God would take up residence, altering every aspect of our hearts. But he says, that is a paradigm, but it's also a practice, that we drink deeply from the word of God. We study critically and devotionally to understand the story of God, which moves to the rest of these ongoing practices that are absolutely critical to leading our heart well, teaching and admonishing in all wisdom. What's beautiful here is that the teaching isn't primarily 
from a position of leadership. This isn't primarily the preaching of the word of God. It's included in that, but teaching and admonishing and all wisdom puts the emphasis on one another. This is a callback to Colossians chapter one, where he says, him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone to present them as mature. And admonishing is literally challenging, it's exhorting, it's using wisdom to apply information timely and rightly. So it's not just throwing truth at people, but it's understanding circumstance and situation and guiding them in truth for their life and well-being. So this is an ongoing practice that allows the word of God to dwell richly in us, reviving our hearts, shaping our hearts, so we lead it well. But what's beautiful here is it's like, you don't just read the word of God over you. You just don't speak the word of God over you or others. You sing it. We store stuff in emotional folders, every single one of us. And we access them more readily through music. I never want to hear you say. And you know what you just sung? I want it that way. Tell me why. Because it's just ingrained. And you may not even like them. You may not even like them, but it's ingrained in you. And if you do like them, you was probably out there like getting ready to you are. Music is movement. It moves us forward. Whether it's an acoustic guitar or something with a bop, it just does something to us. God's designed us for that purpose. And he's saying that we should, have, we should sing the word of God. This is why the Psalms are so invigorating. And most of the music that we sing in, in our church services come from the Psalms. That we should sing the word of God over us, stirring us, singing it to each other. Can I just say that this calls for examination of our playlist? And I don't mean in that weird, I can't listen to certain music because the words burn my ears. I don't mean that. But to examine the diet of our soul through the music and the lyrics that we listen to. Because... We are called to sing one another songs that revive us and move us forward. Truth. Truth. I like how it ends with thankfulness to God in our hearts. That's attitude, posture, and practice. To have thankfulness towards God is to not be consumed with what is clearly bad and broken, nor is it to step into some weird faith-optimism hybrid that's not really true, but it is to root our hopes and our gladness in God's faithfulness. That actually moves us forward to the plea and the prayer that we have to lead our hearts well through the word of God together. But you know, and I know that there's moments where we just don't desire God. And what do we do? What we don't do 
is disengaged for what God uses to cultivate that desire. What we do do is pray sincerely. This prayer, God help. (laughs) God help me, help me, help me. God bring to life what seems simple and basic because it's not doing what you said it would do right now. God help me and God move in me to actually have a heart that's hungry. God make me hungry and make me thirsty and make me courageous to the point where I don't disengage, but with humility and whether it's this small ounce of willingness, I do all of these things knowing that it's really just gathering firewood, waiting for you to ignite something beautiful, a desire, a growing desire for you that really does shape everything else. To that end, let's pray, God. Um, We pray for our hearts that we would experience the greatness of who you are through encountering you. You tell us so much about what you want for us, what you're doing in the world and who you are. Would we encounter you, God? God, our hearts, they're so tricky. Would we examine them well, asking questions with humility and sincerity? And as we get the awareness that you promise through thoughtful examination, God, would you give us the courage to lead our hearts with grace and faith, believing that you are at work in us and all we have to do is join you where you're working. And when we don't have the want to, Make us hungry. And if that is us right now, make us hungry. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.